Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for our exciting Biotech Dealmakers podcast series. I'm Yaron Warber, Biotechnology Analyst at Cowan. I'm super excited to be joined by Drs. Tom Daniel and George Golombeski to discuss the importance of sourcing innovation and drugs externally, doing win-win collaborations, not being afraid to do M&A, and taking on risk when doing deals. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Tom Daniel. Tom is venture partner at Arch Venture Partners, following a long tenure as president, global research, and early development in Celgene. He previously had scientific and discovery roles at Ambrex, Amgen, and Immunex. Dr. George Golombeski is a partner at Joya Ventures Genetic Disease. Prior to that, George was president of Grail and served as a long tenure as executive vice president of business development in Celgene and vice president of business development at Novartis Oncology. Both Tom and George serve as advisors and on boards of many biotech companies. Gentlemen, always great to see you and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Yaron. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. So I have to start by making a reference that you've both been called Batman and Robin. And I think you were very well aware of that. What was the secret sauce that allowed you to be so productive in doing collaborations at Celgene? So George, you want me to start? Uh, sure. <laughs> this, in no, this in no way implies I'm Batman and he's Robin. We just uh, take both those roles together, I guess. The magic sauce, if you will, or the secret sauce that I think we shared was a, a very deep understanding of both small and large company attitudes about collaborations. We had each led all companies and been in large companies. And somehow that shared perspective, along with a really deep love of science and getting science applied to therapeutics, um, was both a bond between us and a great catalyst for to listen carefully to potential partners and to get the deal structures and motivations and ultimately the follow through on those deals correct. George? You agree? I do agree. Um, and, you know, the longer now I have to look back on on the, the, the time at Celgene, I, I think there's a fairly long list um, to answer your own question. I, I, I would, you know, the way to add to your list, Tom, are one, um, you and I very quickly after my arrival at Celgene, and you, you were already there a year or two before me, but very quickly after arrival, we, we kind of naturally, without any negotiation or kind of rational discussion, we fell into a very, very uh, kind of unique and productive collaboration mode, which our respective teams followed suit. And, and that was a key element of the secret sauce because I've been in other organizations where you know, business development and R&D didn't get along all that well because they were competitive in some way. Days. We, we blew past all that um, uh, by our personal and then our group's collaboration. And the other thing, which I, the longer I look back on this, the more important I think this is, um, the organization was behind us uh, almost all the time. And, and whatever they weren't behind us on after a year or two of, of, of doing a lot of collaborations, 
the entire organization from the board to the CEO to the assistants were supportive and understood what we were trying to do. And, and that that's something that one shouldn't underestimate um, because I think our collaboration, our knowledge of small and large companies um, in a different environment wouldn't have had the same result. Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, I think we, we were remarkably well positioned to to be able to elaborate in the way that we did and to have the impact. Um, the, other, the other sort of final point that might be worth making um, is that, that I'm made, George and I, I both agreed that we would necessarily have to expand the pipeline beyond what we could grow internally, um, you know, in order to fill um, the shoes that Revlimid was creating for the company. And um, that made me commit to building an external research organization that was explicitly focused on um, fostering, identifying, fostering, and, and uh, delivering collaboration value. And um, you know, we had a very, very talented leader for that and um, great people in that organization that partnered with George's organization. So the collaboration was very much up and down from the board all the way down, as, as George said, to the assistants. Um, it, it, was, it was really quite palpable and, and, uh, and was felt by everyone in the organization. Yeah, I, I really, really love that answer. And there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and in subsequent podcasts, we're going to talk about some of the challenges to creating this kind of a culture, to your point, where R&D and BD really are collaborative and integrative. And in many bigger companies, that's not always the case. How did you get that culture at Celgene? And, and how did you prepare the, the board and your colleagues in the C-suite and the organization in general to take risk? So for me, you have to go back to the beginning, my recruitment to Celgene, where you know everyone that I spoke with, uh, particularly uh, Saul Bear, who was CEO at that moment, and Bob Hugan, who was COO and then became CEO when, when Saul retired, um, they, they all said emphatically, you know, we're in a unique position. We have this uh, great revenue stream from Revlimid and we need to build the pipeline. We need to build the future of the company. And I think they even use the, you know, cliche, but, you know, we've got to make hay while the sun is shining and the money is rolling in. Um, um, but the difference was, you know, to be frank, I, I had heard that when I joined uh, Elan Pharmaceuticals as the head of BD, um, they meant it, but they got into financial difficulties and, and deals kind of went out the window. Um, and I heard this when I joined Novartis Oncology and, and they meant it, but, you, you know, there is, and that's subject for a different day, but I, I think there is a difference between large cap biotech and large cap pharma. And one of those fundamental differences is risk tolerance, a view of what are capital assets, specifically money. Therefore, um, biotech is willing to take risk and spend it on the future and pipelines. Um, it's a little more difficult to do that at, at big pharma that was just more conservative, more analytical uh, about every deal. So what I'm trying to say here is, some of that culture was there from the beginning. Saul and Bob actually meant it. Uh, there, you know, when I met with Tom he, uh, in my recruitment, he meant it. Um, but it it got even better because I think the organization saw, saw some results that that were positive. Um, you know, we acquired 
Gloucester in a competitive bidding process. Um, you know, Istadax never was a blockbuster in terms of sales, but we, we got the drug, it got approved, it made it to the market. We beat out in a competition, um, a banker-led process, a large pharma who was bidding against us. Um, you know, we did the Agios deal and that was well received by the market and by analysts and, and everybody held their breath wondering if that would be well received or not. And then honestly, um, you know, most of our tenure doing this was, was under Bob Hugan's um, CEO term. And, and Bob was always supportive, but honestly, in the early days, I remember a few times where, you know, as we we're getting ready to sign a big deal, he'd get the team together and say, now, you know, if this doesn't work, who's responsible for the plan? And, you know, if it gets two years delayed, who's responsible? And he rapidly evolved from that to actually going around the halls of Celgene and saying, you know, look, this is the program and not everything's going to work. And when it doesn't work, we just have to move on. And that small incremental shift in Bob's outlook, you know, was huge, even though things were frankly in pretty good shape before he made that transition. Yeah, I might add a couple of points. I first emphatically agree with George on the, the big picture. I think there was also a, a powerful cultural norm set within the organization that was first deeply respectful of external partners and collaborators and assets that were brought in. And secondly, the um, interpersonal relationships that um, people developed both within our organization to manage the expanding pipeline and with the collaborators were um, genuine and grounded in excellent science and, you know, led by the science rather than by some deep commercial motive that um, was, was um, vulnerable to secondary uh, problems within the science. So I, I do think that the, the culture was enriched by the quality of the people, both at the top and all the way through the organizations. Yeah. And, and final comeback. Um, I, I, Look, I, I do think that executives who are involved in this in um, biopharma um, do have to do some teaching of the organization. We, we, Tom and I did that in our respective ways and brought the organization along. But, but two anecdotes to give you a sense of what it was, what we, what we came into. And it was wonderful, actually, relative to other places I've been that weren't deal friendly. So when we were locking down the Agios deal, you know, that was north of 100 million total investment up front. And it, it, this hadn't been done before by Celgene or perhaps by anybody else for an early stage deal. You know, the biggest pushback that we were getting internally, and, and I was hearing a lot of this was, you know, it's too much money for an early stage research collaboration. You know, it's, it's just kind of, and I remember talking to Saul Bear in the hall, and Saul was always usually very calm and, and you know, thoughtful. And he asked me if he could help the deal at all. And I told him, you know, people are, that's ah, too much money, you know, and he, he, he got this look that I'll never forget, like he was just amped up for a moment. He goes, you know, George, we've picked this as our number one project for, for, for doing a deal, you know we're we're making something like after all bills and taxes are paid we're pulling down something like 100 million a month 
you tell those people that this upfront is nothing to us. You know, it's nothing to us. And he was impassioned and adamant. And when we presented it to the board, uh, one board member said, you know, this is new research. I think it's great, but isn't it possible nothing will come of it? And I remember I, I answered the question. I said, well, we just spent 30 minutes telling you why we don't think that's going to happen, but it is possible. And remarkably, relative to other companies, this individual said, that's what I thought, but I think we should do it anyway. So uh, Tom and I and the organization evolved, but frankly inherited a pretty deal-friendly attitude. That, that's terrific. And, and that's really what's so unique about Celgene is how this was really integrated from the ground up all the way to the top and, and back down. And again, maybe to the two of you, how did you separate the dynamic of that push and pull on internal versus external? And Tom, maybe that, that to you first, because usually R&D will sort of play uh, defense on their own assets. And there's, there's a little bit of a non-invented here syndrome at times. How did you coordinate budgets and, and even align incentives in that way? Well, several aspects worked um, and some things didn't, but I'll, I'll emphasize the things that did. Um, first, I was very fortunate to have within my organization a leader who um, was scientifically respected, capable of being influential under situations where he didn't really control um, the external partner. And, and as a consequence of his willingness to take the role as external research leader, I was able to put that on a plane equal to our internal research effort. And then all of the sub-function leaders um, within the organization recognized that our pipeline was unbiased, that we had to advance the best opportunity um, based upon what we were seeing in our governance structure meetings. So it, we became very um, discriminating about our internal pipeline appreciative of the external pipeline. We had our external partners present as if they were part of our organization um, for advancing candidates. So we really created a, a, a culture of uh, uh, you know, equity and, and fairness. Um, and I think people at least recognized we were trying to do that and, and were appreciative of that. And then ultimately as the pipeline expanded and our internal candidates um, suffered as all pipelines do, you know, attrition. Everyone was quite grateful to have, you know, the, the, the expanded opportunities represented by the partnered projects. Um, so that those were, those were key elements. Um, George, you, you might have some other reflections, but I, yeah, uh, briefly, briefly, I can only that, that, um, in every other, uh, um, leadership role I've had in business development in the industry, um, discussions came up about, well, if we, if we do this deal, we have to look at cutting this or we have to keep an eye on that. Um, because in fact, in no company that, that I've ever aware of um, that's in the buying technology or assets, you know, there's never been a budget where somebody can tell you that this year we, we're going to spend a hundred million on upfronts and not more. It's, it's, you know, it's always a discretionary thing. So there've always been discussions about, 
if we do this deal, we can't do that, or we have to, you know, think about cutting back on this. Um, that there was never a single discussion in my memory uh, about that uh, topic at Celgene. Um, also, a lot of companies, of course, you know, though, if, if your asset or your deal goes south, you have to take an impairment charge. And um, sometimes those impairment charges are meted out to certain departments, <clears throat> particularly in at least one or two companies I worked in. If an early stage research deal blew up and you paid 20 million up front for it, the R&D team would get a million dollar hit to their, to their budget. And, um, you know, that could be very painful. And obviously it could be a disincentive for doing deals. Uh, that, to my knowledge, didn't happen at Celgene. Yes, we, we would impair assets, but it wasn't done in a way that disincentivized future, future deal doing. So, um, you know, and, and Tom, of course, as really the owner of R&D, um, did a masterful job of really being agnostic to was it here, was it invented here, or was it not invented here? A, a, a pharma uh, CEO that I worked under at, at one time in my career, not at, at Celgene, you know, said that <laughs> a, 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 very, um, a very memorable quote that, you know, if, if you're in competition, between your own pipeline and the external pipeline. It is miraculous if you find something on the outside that's two years ahead. It's miraculous how in the last month of the deal, our internal program suddenly catches up, you know? And, and, and we just didn't have to deal with those issues. So George, to follow up on that point, we're calling this specific podcast, The Hack Guide to Building Innovation. And drawing from your experience at Celgene and at other companies, and Tom, please chime in as well. What separates companies that really do collaborations and acquisitions well from those that can still get better in the process? So I, I, I'll take a first cut at this and I'll, I'll, I'll only highlight one feature because I think it's so important. And, and your own, in answering your question, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm gonna focus my comments on, uh, um, I'm gonna focus my comments without regard to how many deals somebody does. So I'm not gonna comment on, you know, this is a way you can do more deals. If you want the deals that you do to be done well, um, it may sound ultra trivial, but I think the main thing I would put out there is really listening to your partner from the beginning of negotiations uh, through the negotiations and through the collaboration. You know, I, I've, I've been in other companies where uh, and, and in every case, the people in R&D, on your diligence team, the people in BD are extremely smart. They're extremely capable. But there was a difference, I think, in how we approached listening to our partners at Celgene. And again, the support we had from on high. Uh, just a couple of examples to concrete what I'm saying. I mean, in my time in other larger companies, you know, you'd bring back a deal to a review board and, well, why isn't it 10 million cheaper? Well, because these guys need this, you know, these guys need $30 million to make their business work for the next couple of years. And, you know, this is the best thing out there. It's worth 30 million. Well, but go back to them and get 5 million off. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've had those conversations, you know, at, at Celgene, again, um, Tom and I all didn't always disagree. We didn't always agree with the, the CEO, but, but 
more often than not, we came to agreement or a decision not to do something relatively quickly. And I remember once telling Bob Hugan, who asked me, was this deal going to get done like in the next two weeks? And I said, well, I, I don't know. They're really digging in on this one issue. And he was like, well, tell me indeed the issue is. And, and you know, remarkably, only at Celgene in those days, he said, you know, why don't you just came on that point? And I don't, you know, if it really comes back to haunt us, we'll just have to renegotiate something. It's not absolutely absolutely material to the deal. I just smiled and said, sure, we can do that. Um, so, um, but really, I, I've been sitting uh, in my career that the little company would say X, and whether they heard or they were just ignored, it, it doesn't matter. Give, you know, give them what they, what they want and ask. If you can, there are times where you just can't, and you have to explain that. But I, I was shocked at Celgene at how just good listening skills could benefit deal doing. Yeah, I can maybe amplify a little bit on that. There was no more um, valuable prototype than our Agios deal and in, in the, the outcome for um, both companies and um, the science and therapeutics. Um, that early negotiation was deep, long, hard to understand explicitly what Ajos aspired to do and for them to understand what we were trying to do through the collaboration. And for me anyway, George, you, you will recall this, we sat many, many hours in several different meetings to get the beginning of the deal right so that ultimately the terms incentivize both parties to deliver on what was true value creation rather than um, you know, some sort of a, a quick answer. And, and because the relationships with, between Agios and Celgene were so deep, not just at the senior level, but throughout the organization, we, we were flexible on the timing for initial payments we renegotiated the contract and our, our relationship with them on at least three different occasions that I remember explicitly. And in each case, there was a commitment to win-win, you know, for both parties. And so I, the other piece that, that George is alluding to is, is really we established trust with the partners. And we did some very difficult things, including reestablishing our relationship with Bluebird after we did a Juno collaboration. That's right. It was very, very tricky. Um, but, but it was, in fact, um, the consequence of having the relationships and the planning to understand. You know, good listening, uh, trusting your partners doesn't end with the deal doing and the deal signature. <clears throat> you know, when I, there was a period of time when I, I think I served on the odd JSC and when I would go to those meetings, you know, the, the, the Agios and the Celgene scientists would sit there talking like they were postdocs in the same lab. I mean, they obviously were in constant communication, you know, understood deeply what was important to each other and um, uh, an important success, which is, which is kind of low-hanging fruit if you can just, you know, strike out that clause in license agreements in our sole discretion. <laughs> And I don't mean that in the licensing deal, just in your attitude. That's a great point. And let me, a lot of the things that come up a lot 
both in the business development community, operator community, certainly on Wall Street, is how do you measure success? Did you look at some kind of net present value or discounted cash flow? I know Selgin looked at ROIC or return on invested capital. Did you have any financial metrics that sort of were holy grail that you needed to pass the test? Or did you also have more flexibility? Because you're both doing bolt-on acquisitions, you're doing pipeline collaborations, you're buying specific assets, and then you're buying companies. And you're trying to take a, a lead asset, Revlimid, it's a huge cash cow, and diversify and grow. So it's a tall order to how do you hack a pipeline from scratch, so to speak. How important is it having financial metrics that are set in store versus having flexibility? I think for Tom and I, and I think for the organization as a whole, even though we had some analysts and we had people inside the company who counted the number of deals we did per year. And there was, I remember seeing a graph and it it kept going up. Oh, this is great. But we, Tom and I, and friends of the people at Celgene, never really took a whole lot of comfort from how many deals did we do. It, it was, is this going to make a drug? And, you know, given the, the time it takes to get to being an approved drug, you're, 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 you're happy if it, if it progresses from preclinical into the clinic, if it progresses to phase two. But we, we always thought that we, I know in Tom and my view, it was about compounds that could make it into the medical armamentarium help patients and then consequently create you know, financial success for Celgene and its shareholders. I think one of our advantages in deal doing at Celgene was we did not build elaborate financial models for um, early stage preclinical deals. Was it one company did that and people openly discussed, well, is, is this bear any resemblance to reality or is this just a fantasy exercise? We would do an over the thumb, like here's how much our own INDs cost, here's how much this deal is going to cost us, and if we get it market, this is what it's going to cost us, and can we get that back, and so it was a sanity test. When it came to drugs that were in the clinic, like GED 301, uh, and certainly when it came to acquisitions, Farmion, um, 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 Receptos, uh, Abraxas. We had very, very elaborate, very similar to big pharma financial models. We looked at those to guide what we could afford to pay. Um, you know, and and in the case of those big deals, it was just pretty obvious if they succeeded um, or they didn't succeed financially by any measure. Abraxas and Receptos would have been successes. Um, you know, and GED, which. Um, you know, didn't make it in a phase three would not would have been negative. But but the quick answer to your question is, we only built those models with respect to deals that where you could get a view of the product, and you could therefore project revenues. And those models were rigorous and sophisticated. We didn't model super early stage stuff. And I frankly don't feel like that adds a whole lot of value. Um, and we didn't actually have a an annual exercise where we calculated, you know, have we hit our return, you know, metrics or not. Um, I think everybody knew which deals were successful and which weren't. And we were frankly trying to get on and do more deals because, you know, replacing them, it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tall order. When investors are looking internally, or I guess the outside world tries to look internally into a company, 
what are some of the telltale signs that a collaboration is going very well versus a collaboration is struggling or maybe kind of going off the skids? Um, what's the backdoor view into what's going on? So the, the obvious metrics are progression and you know, visible um, uh, scientific progress. The things that are um, more, more subtle um, and, and are arguably, um, um, you know, variable have to do in, in watching the, the uh, personnel, how effectively is the company recruiting highly talented, experienced people who want to work on these projects? I think that that's a uh, sort of a metadata point of, of high importance. Um, obviously, scientific publications lag significantly behind uh, what's really going on in the company. Um, but if there are tailing presentations that illustrate you know, that the scientific premise is sound, and the data are accumulating, I think that's helpful. Um, a third metric um, is often, um, you know, the greatest complement uh, to a program is competition. You know, where, where are um, other competitors trying to position assets in uh, the context of a given project and what look like in terms of the competitiveness of the, the and then finally, you know, I think uh, th this is pretty obvious, but um, regulatory dialogues are the dominant, you know, stop and go uh, machinery for projects and, you know, careful attention to what is public around uh, regulatory interactions. Um, you know, I think in many cases, the role of FDA is over emphasized. I think some very creative programs go XUS and make tremendous progress, um, you know, in early clinical trials, gathering data and better understanding the, the technical hypotheses around biomarkers and advancement. Um, so those are, those are some points that, that may be helpful, your own. I'm, I'm sure you are a student of many of them, but anyway. George, what, what about, what are your advice? I, I don't have too much to add to that. I, I, I would make a couple of points. One, I, I, I actually think the bigger the company, um, and it may not be a perfectly linear scale, but, but, but in general, the bigger the company, the, the harder it is to kind of get a read on, on that. And, and you, you have to revert to many of the things that, that, that Tom articulated. I, I think if you are talking about you know, Celgene was, again, it was a large cap biotech company, but as far as market cap was, was in the time that, that I was there, lower than some of the most massive big companies. Um, and so, you know, whether it's at an R&D day or at, you know, CEO or CFO presentations, frankly, if a collaboration is going really well and the, the company... Is, is and you discount for the size indicated. I, I think, you know, generally if a collaboration is going really well and it's a high priority for the organization, it tends to come up in some public conversations that, you know, and we're, we were really excited about our collaboration with company X and blah, blah, blah. Um, and if there's just silence, 
um, that's less good, right? But again, it's a little, little bit fun because you, you, you have to um, discount a little bit for um, who is talking and how big the company is. But I, I, I still know now sitting on the side of a lot of small companies, I'm, I'm struck by when, when the large company thinks it's going well, they find a way to bring it up. Let's get to the personal touch and maybe rapid fire sort of humorous part of the, uh, the podcast. What's your life hack? <laughs> discriminating the people with whom I most want to spend time in my professional career. Uh, and, you know, for me, um, some metrics of that are, you know, around, you know, how creative and fun and, and, and engaged they are in trying to help patients get better medicines. And, um, it's kind of a magical metric. It works for me on everything. And um, whether it's a uh, sort of a um, nascent effort with a new company or um, consulting on something that I think might be disruptive, it's all about the people, Hiran. Right. And George, what is your favorite hobby? And what hobby do you wish you took up earlier in life? I feel like I got 30 of those. <laughs> um, well, I, I have two very, very long-standing hobbies um, that go back to my teens, and, and those are serious photography um, for many years, landscapes, and more laterally with, you know, all the cool stuff that digital can do, um, wildlife, bir birds in particular. And the second one is I'm, I'm, I remain a, a very serious student of classical music. I tried during my graduate years to take up piano, um, had a wonderful teacher, but I found while I'm deeply capable of appreciating music, reading scores, reading biographies of all the major composers. Um, I wasn't a really very good pianist, so I gave it up and bought a good audio system, which I listen to frequently. Um, as far as hobbies I wish I'd taken up earlier, um, I guess four years ago, my wife and I moved to uh, a new residence a little bit out in the country. And this house, you'd have to see it, but it lends itself well to um, to, to gardening. And I, here, I'm actually not talking about vegetables. I'm talking about uh, native flowering plants. And I've developed a kind of obsession with certain varieties of Japanese maples. And I, I wish I'd taken up gardening a, a hell of a lot earlier in life. Are you talking about red maple? Or are you talking about whipping Japanese? No, I'm, ta I'm talking about Japanese maples, which, which you know, I, I'm, I'm still coming up to speed on this. But but like so many things in my life that I've deeply enjoyed, you know, they're, they're probably, um, if not, they're probably 500 different cultivars. They're not, they're all the same species, but because the Japanese going back many years and then uh, in more recent times, um, people of all nations have found that these trees, you know, you can, you can cross them, you can mutate them. And you, you wouldn't believe the variety that you have from this. It's a single species, but I, I have two trees in my front yard. One is red all year till it drops its leaves and has a perfect vase form. And the other looks like something out of the, um, you know, out of the Jurassic period. And the maple leaves are all curled and look dried up, but they're still a tiny little maple leaf. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated and this obsessive, uh, breeding and, and cultivating that's gone on, on has just given us wonderful variety within a single species. Terrific. 
George and Tom, thank you so much for joining us. As always, extremely insightful, uh, lots of contact, really rich with, with experience and insights. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll continue to be in touch. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.